Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 21, 2 Samuel chapters 13 and 14. Well, last week we finished the first half of 2 Samuel chapter 13 that reports the horrific incident of David's firstborn son, Amnon, raping his half-sister Tamar in an act of out-of-control sexual lust. Now, I'm not going to review the gory details, but I want to remind you of the surrounding circumstances and intrigue. The author of the book of Samuel makes a point that Tamar was, at least in Amnon's eyes, overwhelmingly beautiful. However, as much as Amnon's lust was the catalyst for his crime, in the background was the playing out of political and family jealousies. Much of what went on was about the struggle for power and for position within the royal family. Now, preparing this lesson turned out to be a rather soul-searching exercise. So we're not going to make a huge amount of progress today. The principles that jump off the pages of this chapter have so much bearing in our time that to go by them without making the connection would be to make our study little more than a history lesson. Now Amnon, as David's firstborn, was heir apparent to the throne of Israel. And and this hierarchy was understood by the people of Israel, by the extended royal family, and by David himself. However, Absalom, another son of David, who was Amnon's half-brother, they had different mothers, he also had designs for the throne, and he had spent years building up a following of loyal supporters, or in some cases merely of insiders who were placing bets on Absalom to somehow outmaneuver Amnon and become king. And when Amnon violently raped Absalom's sister, Absalom and Tamar now had the same mother and father, and then when Amnon instantly rejected her, and threw her out of his chambers, there was a clear message behind this. Okay. And the message was that Amnon reaffirmed his position as unquestioned crown prince. And that as David's favorite and firstborn son, he was untouchable. And that Absalom's side of the family, although influential, would be subservient to him. In that era, to have sex, especially if it was forced, with a rival's wife or concubine, or in this case, sister, was a customary and unmistakable sign of domination and control. But there was another side to this story as well. Absalom was a clever and coldly calculating man. Amnon's assault upon Tamar, while ruinous for her, provided an opportunity for Absalom to use to his benefit what was otherwise a family disaster and a setback. 
as has been the motto of ruthless political leaders and political hopefuls since time immemorial, you don't ever let a good crisis go to waste. Okay. All it would take is some, deter- some determination, a little bit of patience on Av Shalom's part, and his fondest aspirations just might become attainable. Let's pick up on this story at verse 19. Open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13. And we're going to start reading at verse 19. That'll be page 347 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Tamar put ashes on her head, tore her long-sleeved robe that she was wearing, laid her hand on her head and went off, crying aloud as she went. And Avshalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now, my sister, keep quiet, because he is your brother. Don't take the matter to heart. But Tamar remained desolate in her brother Avshalom's house. And when King David heard about all these things, he became very angry. And as for Avshalom, he refused to say a word to Amnon, either good or bad. For Avshalom hated Amnon for having raped his sister Tamar. And two years later, when Avshalom had sheep shears and Baal Hatzor near Ephraim, Avshalom invited all of the king's sons. And Avshalom went to the king and said, Your servant has sheep shears. Please, let the king and his servants come along with your servant. And the king replied to Avshalom, No, my son, let's not all go. We, we don't want to be a burden to you. Avshalom pressed him, but he wouldn't go. However, he gave him his blessing. And then Avshalom said, If you won't go, then please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But Avshalom kept pressing him, so he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Avshalom ordered his servants, Pay close attention. When Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, Kill Amnon, then strike him down. Now don't be afraid. I'm the one ordering you to do it, but take courage and be bold. Avshalom's servants did to Amnon as Avshalom had ordered. At this, all the king's sons jumped up, mounted their mules, and fled. And while they were on their way, the news came to David that Avshalom had killed all the king's sons. Not one of them was left alive. The king got up, tore his clothes, and he lay on the ground while all his servants stood by with their clothes torn too. But then Yonadav... The son of Shema, David's brother, spoke up. He said, My Lord shouldn't think that they've killed all the young men, the king's sons. Only Amnon is dead. For Avshalom has meant to do this ever since the day he raped his sister Tamar. So my Lord shouldn't take it as seriously as if all the king's sons are dead. Only Amnon is dead. However, Avshalom took flight. And the young man keeping watch looked up and he saw many people coming along the road behind him on the hillside. Yonadav said to the king, Here, the king's sons have come. It's just as your servant said. The moment he finished speaking, this king's sons came and cried out and wept and the king too with all of his servants cried out in great pain. And Avshalom fled and he went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. David mourned for his son every day. 
So Avshalom fled, went to Geshur, and stayed there three years. But as King David became reconciled to the death of his son Amnon, he was increasingly filled with longing to see Avshalom. I want to stress that over and over again the words brother and sister are used in these passages to describe Absalom and Tamar's relationship. Now I do so because of the questionable teaching by some rabbis and sages that at times is spilled over into modern Christian scholarship that the two weren't really brother and sister at all. And this is because if they were not related, it means there really wasn't incest in David's family. And there could even be a good argument that what occurred between Amnon and Tamar was not so much rape as simply the overly zealous seduction by a young virile man of a somewhat reluctant young female, kind of mirroring the David and Bathsheba affair. Now, the goal of that line of reasoning is to read a predisposed doctrine of Judaism back into the story. With that predisposed doctrine being that David was innocent, if not utterly sinless, all throughout his life. And therefore, the reason that David took no action whatsoever against Amnon after he heard what happened was proper response, since nothing terribly wrong had occurred anyway. Now, I'm sure that this idea of reading a predisposed doctrine back into a biblical story is something that you recognize probably ought not to be done because it either distorts or misapplies God's commandments and principles. It takes God's message. It turns it into something else. So it's not right for religious authorities to concoct a doctrine or a philosophy and then regardless of what the actual words of the Bible say, explain that those passages support their doctrine. See, this is the essence of allegorical teaching and sermonizing. which has been at the heart of the synagogue and institutional church liturgy for centuries. Allegory and the reading of a predisposed doctrine back into the Bible is how a religious leader can, for instance, read the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew 5, get to the paragraph about Messiah emphasizing that no one should think that what he's saying ought to be taken as meaning that the Torah, the Law, and the Prophets have been abolished or even changed to the slightest degree. And then the leader explains to his congregation that regardless of what the actual words say, we are to understand that Christ did abolish the very things he said he didn't. As I said, this is just one example of many And when taken as a package, it's done a lot of harm to Judeo-Christianity. Well, at verse 20, we see that apparently Tamar went to her brother Avshalom's house for refuge. That is, she didn't return to her living quarters at the virgin's convent or compound because the reality is she no longer belonged there. She had her purity stolen from her. And one can only imagine the malicious gossip that would have erupted if she had shown up 
distraught, with her clothing torn, soiled with acids, smeared with blood. Tamar really had no other option than to remain as a ward of her brother, probably for the rest of her life, or at least rest of Absalom's life. So Absalom counseled her to keep what he views as a family matter to herself so that there won't be a public scandal. Word of Amnon's incestuous act reaches King David and we're told that he became angry. But that's apparently about as far as his concern went. There is not one hint that a single word was spoken between David and Amnon. Certainly there's no record that any action whatsoever was taken by David. No rebuke, no punishment, no nothing. See, here's a serious flaw exposed in David. David full well knew that by the laws of Moses, Amnon had a price to pay and justice needed to be applied. However, one must admit that it isn't so cut and dried as to what that price might be. See, the law that comes closest to dealing with this situation is in Deuteronomy 22, verses 28 and 29. There it says this, If a man comes upon a girl who is a virgin but who is not engaged, and he grabs her, and he has sexual relations with her, and they are caught in the act then the man who had intercourse with her must give to the girl's father one and a quarter pounds of silver shekels. And she'll become his wife because he humiliated her. And he may not divorce her as long as he lives. The problem is, though, that Tamar was Amnon's half-sister. So marriage was not possible according to another law. The law of Leviticus 18.9, which says... You are not to have sexual relations with your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere. Do not have sexual relations with them. And the idea that Amnon would pay a bit of silver as as, as reparations to his father, King David, is laughable. Besides, as it says towards the end of Leviticus chapter 18, for those who engage in any of these disgusting practices, whoever they may be, they will be cut off from their people. So keep my charge not to follow any of these abominable customs that others before you have followed and thus defile yourselves by doing them. I am Adonai your God. Thus according to Leviticus... While Amnon didn't have the death penalty coming, he certainly was to be banished and cut off from his people in the same way a leper might be. And he equally could not marry Tamar as a solution because that marriage mostly amounted to a protection for her. So David did nothing. And as what we're we're about to see... His doing nothing led to more violence. It's interesting that we see a similar thing happen with David's ancestor, Jacob, who also seemed to have no interest in disciplining his sons or taking 
taking action when wrong was done. You recall that the son of the king of Shechem raped Jacob's daughter Dinah. And Jacob did essentially nothing except to become angry. In fact, it was the king of Shechem who came to Jacob, had in hand, to ask Jacob if maybe this whole thing could be made right by his son marrying Dinah, which in fact was the remedy of Deuteronomy 22, even though it would be centuries later before this law was even given. Jacob agreed to this, but his sons were incensed that their father would respond by essentially giving in to a foreign king. So they took a violent and wrong action by killing the entire male population of that city who were innocent. They had no part in this. Jacob's response to all that was just to move. See, here's another valuable lesson for us. It is a God principle that wrongdoing even by our children must be dealt with harshly if the situation is serious enough. You know, we can call it discipline if we like, but God calls it justice. Okay? Unfortunately, humanism has taken hold of society in this age. So even a mild slap on the bottom is considered abuse right, that's punishable by jail time or in some cases the state taking the child from the home. Equally so, it has become customary in American society that the mother is the disciplinarian and the father just looks on helplessly or is disinterested, prefers to be a buddy more than a parent. While maternal discipline is certainly better than none, it often casts a woman into a role she wasn't supposed to have to bear. Men, it's our job to discipline and exact justice upon our children when necessary, especially as they get older. Both to benefit them in the long run and to satisfy God's commandments in the short run. I I can remember the several times my mother said to me, wait until your father gets home and I tell him what you did. (laughs) Those are words no young boy wanted to hear. It was effective though. And you know what? My father did what was needed. Apparently David's children had no such threat hanging over their heads. And the result, as this and the next few chapters are going to show, wasn't less violent and more responsible children. Today we're told that if we spank our children, we'll turn them into bullies and abusers. But rather, it was a stable of reprobate young princes who thought that they were above the law, that there would not be consequences for their behavior. Ironically, it would be the lack of punitive action upon them that led to catastrophic and deadly results later on in their lives. Well, after two years of a tense rift between Amnon and Tamar's brother, Avshalom, Avshalom had neither forgotten nor forgiven. For two years, 
His desolate sister lived with Absalom, a constant reminder of Amnon's arrogant and infamous deed. Now, no doubt, Absalom was moved by his tormented sister's plight, and it pained him. At the same time, Absalom knew that he could use this to his advantage to achieve his goal of Israel's throne. And feeling that enough time had passed so that any suspicion could be laid to rest, he found exactly the right circumstance and moment that he could take action. It was the sheep shearing season in Israel and throughout the Middle East. Sheep shearing was was festive. It was a joyous time when when work was mixed with pleasure. It was like a it was like a birthday party. Family and friends would gather together to work as a team, shaving that wool from the lambs and then exacting their profit. But it always involved copious amounts of wine and food as well. A regular party atmosphere that the folks look forward to. Thus, Absalom used this innocent occasion to press his father to come to the family sheep-sharing and to allow all the male siblings to come as well, a family reunion of sorts. Well, naturally, David declined to come himself. This is not the place for a king. And this is what Avshalom had counted on. However, he was surprised that his father also declined to to allow his many sons to go. Perhaps it was that David grew a bit suspicious when Absalom specifically asked for Amnon to come. But Avishalom was nothing if not persuasive. And so David set his skepticism aside and he agreed that all the siblings could go, including Amnon. Well, even if David wasn't suspicious of Avishalom's motives, it was always dangerous to have all of a king's sons dispatched to one place because of the possibility of some unknown calamity whereby they would all be killed or captured. Such a thing could bring about the end of a king's dynasty. The place of the gathering was Baal Hatzor, about two miles northwest of Ophrah. This is, this is not the same Hatzor, by the way, that's located up in the Galilee. Now, Absalom instructed his servants, men who were the most loyal to him, that once they observed that Amnon was sufficiently drunk with wine, they were to attack and kill him. Naturally, the servants were were reluctant. The intended victim, after all, was the king's firstborn son, the precious crown prince. But Absalom told them, don't be concerned. He'll take the blame. They did the dirty deed as ordered. Now, were the servants right to follow the orders of their master to kill Amnon? No. They were responsible before God for that murder. They incurred blood guilt. Once again we see David's past coming back to haunt him. A few years earlier, David had instructed Joab to kill Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to clear the path so that David could add her to his harem. Other than wanting to be sure that the plan would work and that the Israelite soldiers who would be nearby wouldn't suspect that this was really a murder plot, 
Joab seemed to be entirely unconcerned about the immorality and wickedness of David's order. So in proportional justice, David's firstborn son is about to be murdered by disinterested third parties who are just following orders from someone who wants him out of the way. And now with Amnon gone, Avshalom would be next in line as king. And David had proved time and again that he was incapable of confronting his children's sins. David would never exact justice upon Abishalom for murder. Everybody knew it. But this was the Middle East. And cultural justice was a complex matter. Absalom didn't hide the fact that indeed he was the head of the conspiracy to kill his half-brother Amnon. But that this was because he could claim the right (coughs) as the Goel, the family blood avenger. And so he felt that the general, general population would merely see him as doing his duty. Well, when David's other sons saw Absalom's men killing Amnon, they jumped onto their mules and fled, fearing for their lives. Mule, not donkey, is the correct word here. In Hebrew, it's pered. Mules were the mounts that royalty rode because they were expensive. Mules have to be crossbred to produce. It is known that Israel purchased these animals from their neighbors because crossbreeding was forbidden in Israel by the Torah. Well, in all the confusion and chaos, a rumor spread that all of David's sons were killed and the rumor reached David. He thought the worst possible disaster had happened. His sons were dead. Now his dynasty is in jeopardy. And as he lay on the ground in mourning, accompanied by his royal court, Yonadav, David's nephew, spoke up and told him that the rumor wasn't true. All of David's sons hadn't been killed, just Amnon. Now recall that we see this same villain in Amnon's residence devising the plot to get Tamar to come to Amnon so that he could have her. And of course we see him now as being near to David so that he could have the king's ear. See, this was a person who was maneuvering to get himself in proper position to become a man of greater influence in the next administration, regardless of who would wear the crown. He was Amnon's ally until Amnon was killed And so now it was time to play it safe to kind of see how things worked out. In fact, Yonadov was so bold as to let David know that as an insider, he knew things that the king didn't know about his own children. He knew the reason for Amnon's assassination, so he didn't want David to think that there was a full-scale coup underway. Rather, it was just an honor killing. Avishalom did this out of revenge 
for his sister Tamar. Just as David had facilitated Tamar's rape by ordering her to go to Amnon to fix him some food, now David has facilitated his firstborn son's death by ordering Amnon and all of his sons to attend the sheep sharing. Notice the pattern. First, unlawful sex, and then murder as a result. But the irony is even thicker. Yonadav says, Oh, my lord, the king shouldn't take it seriously as if all the king's sons are dead, only Amnon is dead. See, this has the same sociopathic and kind of indifferent tone of, Oh, don't let this matter get you down. The sword devours in one way or another. This is what David said to Joab when told that several innocent Hebrew soldiers had died in order that Uriah was killed without suspicion being placed upon the king. David would have instantly recognized that once again the divine curse for his adultery and murder had fallen like a guillotine. Those words of dark promise from God, the sword shall never leave your household, that just that lay upon David as if it were a boulder upon his chest. He was trapped. He could hardly breathe. Avishalom knew that he would need to stay far away from his father for a while. Murdering the crown prince was, was more serious than rape. Not only that, but Amnon's side of the family would now be after blood revenge upon this blood avenger. See, that's the way of the Orientals. He went to his mother's hometown. He stayed under the protection of his grandfather, the king of Geshur, biding his time. Many months passed, and David, finally coming to terms with the death of Amnon, began to set his mind on Avishalom. To say David was conflicted puts it mildly. Since his firstborn was killed, who was going to be next in line to replace him? Just as Amnon had seen, uh, had been seen as the crown prince, Avshalom must have been seen as the next one after him by one and all. Can David bring him back and forgive him? Can David bring him back and trust him not to do to David what he did to Amnon? David well understood the ways of blood revenge. But he also well understood that Avishalom was ambitious and ruthless and impatient. Now let's see what happens next. Let's move on to chapter 14. Chapter 14. Yoav the son of Zeruiah perceived that the king missed Avshalom, so Yoav sent to Tekoa and brought from there a clever woman and said to her, Please pretend you're a mourner. Put on mourning clothes and don't anoint yourself with oil, but appear to be a woman who has mourned for the dead for a long time. And go into the king and speak, of him, speak to him in this fashion. 
And then Yoav told her just what to say. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell down with her face to the ground, prostrating herself and said, King, help! And the king said to her, What's the trouble? And she answered, I'm a widow. And after my husband died, my two sons were out in the field. And they got into a fight with each other and there was no one to separate them and one hit the other and killed him. Now the whole family has come against me. They're saying, hand over the one who hit his brother so that we can put him to death for killing his brother. They want to destroy the heir as well and thus quench my one remaining coal. Then my husband will have neither name nor survivor anywhere on earth. And the king said to the woman, Go back home. I myself will decide what to do about you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, king, let the guilt be on me and my father's family. The king and his throne be guiltless. And the king answered, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me. He won't bother you anymore. Please, she said, let the king swear by Adonai your God that the blood avengers won't do any more destroying so that they won't destroy my son. And he said, As Adonai lives, not one of your son's hairs will fall to the ground. Well, then the woman said, Please allow your servant to say something else to my lord the king. Go on, he replied. And the woman said, Why is it then that you have produced a situation exactly like this against God's people? By saying what you have said, the king has virtually incriminated himself in that the king does not bring home the son he banished. For we will all die someday. We'll be like water spilled on the ground that can't be gathered back up again. And God makes no exception for anyone. The king should think of some way to keep the son he banished from being forever an outcast. Now the reason I came to speak about this matter to my lord the king is that the people were intimidating me. So your servant said, I will speak now to the king. Maybe the king will do what his servant is asking. For the king will listen and rescue his servant from the hands of those who would destroy me and my son together from our share of God's inheritance. Then your servant said, Please let the lord my king say something that will give me relief. For my lord the king is like an angel of God in discerning good from bad. And may Adonai your God be with you. The king answered the woman, I'm going to ask you a question and don't hide anything from me. And the woman said, let my lord the king now speak. And the king said, did Joab put you up to this? And the woman answered, as you live, my lord the king, when my lord the king speaks, no one can avoid the issue by turning right nor left. Yes, it was your servant Joab who had me do this. And he put in my mouth every word you have heard your servant say. Your servant Yoab did this in order to bring about some change in the situation. But my Lord is wise. He has the wisdom of an angel of God when it comes to understanding anything going on in the land. And the king said to Joab, All right, I'm granting this request. Go bring back young Absalom. Yoab fell to the ground on his face, prostrating himself and blessed the king. Yoav said, Today your servant knows that I have won your favor, my lord king, because the king has done what your servant requested. Then Yoav got up, went to Geshur, and brought Abishalom back to Yerushalayim. However, the king said, Let him return to his own house. He's not to appear in my presence. So Abishalom returned to his own house and did not appear before the king. Now in all Israel, there was no one more praised for his beauty than Abishalom. 
There was no defect on him from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He, he would cut his hair only once a year at the end of the year. And the only reason he cut it then was because it weighed him down. He weighed the hair from his head at 200 shekels using the royal weight, about 5 pounds. To Av Shalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. And she was a beautiful young woman. Avshalom lived two years in Jerusalem without appearing before the king. Then Avshalom summoned Joab, planning to send him to the king, but he refused to come to him. He summoned him a second time. He still wouldn't come. So he said to his servants, See, Joab's field over there is close to mine, and he has barley there. Go, set it on fire. And Avshalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab got up and went to Avshalom at his house and asked, Why did your servants set my field on fire? And Avshalom answered Joab, Look, I sent a messenger to, come to, to, to you to come here so that I could send you to the king to ask, Why did I come to Gesher? Come from Gesher? It would have been better for me if I just stayed there. So now let me appear before the king. And if I'm guilty of anything, he can kill me. Joab went to the king and told him. And when he, had called, when he called for Avshalom, he went to the king, prostrated himself with his face to the ground before the king, and then the king kissed Avshalom. Well, in verse 1, the palace intrigue is once again apparent. Yoav, another of David's nephews, and his chief military commander, he re-enters the scene now. Now, he determines to try and effect reconciliation between David and Absalom. But to what end? I mean, it's difficult from the context to figure out if Yoav is just being a good, loyal servant to David and, and with empathy, empathy sees that the king longs for her son Absalom, but he's morally paralyzed. He can't figure out how to deal with the conundrum of wanting to see this prodigal son who had killed his other son, <clears throat> or if, or was it maybe that Joab was secretly loyal now to Absalom, <clears throat> and he's trying to get him back to Jerusalem and near to the throne to prepare for the day that David must turn over power to his successor. <clears throat> Now, although we can't know for sure, the population of Israel was probably behind Absalom now that Amnon was dead. They well knew what Amnon had done to Tamar and likely they admired Absalom for doing his duty as the blood avenger. Of course, the laws of Moses don't allow this. You see, Amnon had robbed Tamar of her virginity, but he had committed no capital crime. So while avenging Tamar's rape was culturally expected, it was evil in God's eyes. But the nature of populist sentiment always has to do with political correctness and the current national mood. Only rarely does divine and eternal right and wrong play a role. But it's the tendency of both Jew and Christian to freely kind of substitute one for the other. Now I'd like to conclude today's lesson with this thought. <clears throat> In our time, 
we see an assault upon God's holiness and His laws and commands and even His authority as perhaps never before. Man-made doctrines and philosophies and intellectualism rules the day. The issues of homosexual rights, gay marriage, disposition of the Holy Land of Israel, abortion, Islam, so much more are today viewed through the eyes of 21st century modernity that stresses tolerance rather than through the eyes of the Creator who stresses obedience. And sadly, vast segments of the church and the synagogue are fully caught up in that spider's web of deceit and rebellion that makes our unstable hearts as the best judge of good and evil rather than God's commandments. It's not difficult to see this striking parallel between what is happening in David's Israel of 980 BC and the worldwide march towards secularism in our time. At the core of the issue then, just as it is now, is the relegating of the Torah to irrelevance in favor of the philosophies of religious intellectuals and institutions. The hope that we have is that a global grassroots revival is underway to restore the entire Word of God to its rightful place of authority. And central to that is the rediscovery of the validity and value of the Torah and the Old Testament. A sizable segment of Christianity has declared that God has been essentially reduced to one attribute alone. Love. His other attributes, the more difficult and demanding ones, were severed from him when we turn the page of our Bible from Malachi to Matthew. And love, of course, demands that people of the same sex who love each other be allowed to marry. Love demands that Gentile foreigners and those who hate God's people receive a fair share of Abraham's inheritance because that will bring peace. Love demands that Allah be given equal status with Jehovah because it makes no difference who we view as God as long as we have faith in a higher being. Love says we cannot tell a woman whether or not she may kill the baby that's in her womb because that removes her choice. Love prohibits taking the life of a murderer. Love overrides every divine commandment that demands proportionate justice especially if it's not in line with our thinking because that would be retribution and retribution is beneath us. Love demands that our concerns are God's chief concern because He's here to serve us and make us happy. A sizable segment of Judaism has declared that God's main attribute is humanitarianism. 
And humanitarianism demands that God's enemies be treated as God's friends. Humanitarianism demands that God's people must no longer see themselves as the distinct and set-apart people that He made them to be. Humanitarianism says that if we're just nice enough to those who hate us, they'll finally see our inherent human goodness and accept us. Humanitarianism says that our behavior is what gives us righteousness before the Lord. Humanitarian is the means that God ordained to bring about the conditions that will eventually bring in the Messiah and His kingdom. And none of these philosophies and doctrines that I've just listed, which are just but a few of many, have any scriptural basis. None of them reflects any divine reality. But it does reflect a steady falling away from God. Even by those who insist that they love Him and serve Him. And this is all just as it was with David and with all Israel during the time of the kings. Okay, we'll continue this next time.